You're listening to You're the, spindle, listening on to the spindle on Wastoids. Hello, everybody. It's the Spindle Podcast with Mark and John. Welcome to the Spindle, a podcast about 7-inch records. I'm Mark. I'm John. And in each episode, we talk about one seven-inch record and hopefully give you some insight into it that you haven't heard before. We both got into music in the 80s and 90s when seven inches were super important, especially on independent labels. So that's the era we mostly draw from, but we sometimes pick some stuff earlier or later than that, too. And either way, we try to keep it short and to the point, just like seven inches do. So on this episode, we are going to talk about the Screaming Trees double seven-inch Change has come backed with days and time speaks its golden tongue backed with flashes. This was released on Sub Pop Records in Seattle in 1989. Seattle, the town that Screaming Trees were from. Uh, I think it's their only record they actually ever did on Sub Pop. And I'm not sure when or where the songs were recorded, but the first seven inches produced by Jack and Dino and the second by Steve Fisk. So, and those guys both had studios of their own, I'm pretty sure. So I imagine they were recorded at those studios. Um, the band lined up at this point was Mark Lanigan on vocals, Gary Lee Connor on guitar and trumpet on a couple, um, I think one track here, Van Connor, his brother on bass and Mark Pickerel on drums. Um, this is their third single. If you count the collaboration with Beat Happening that came out the year before as one, this would be their third signal. And they already had four albums out, uh, three of which were on SST. And one of the interesting things about this double seven inches is like, it's like the gap between when they were on SST and when they got onto a major label, got onto Epic Records. And in a way, it's kind of, it kind of musically sort of a midpoint too. There's a lot of what they did before that you can hear on this but there's also sort of what would come after that you can hear on it as well and um it's four just really awesome screaming tree songs basically um possibly some of the best screaming tree songs yeah i think it's great and that's uh, to me it's their pinnacle and i don't mean that in a dismissive way i think it just really all kind of comes together on on that particular on this particular record for sure yeah, uh, yeah. it just it it's the best combination of kind of their garagey sort of psychedelic thing the songs all hit like they you know some of their songs are good some of them are songs you know on the okay. albums although yeah. i i generally think their hit rate's pretty good it, they definitely have a tone they they kind of work through that can get maybe a little samey sometimes uh but this song this this record they all have pretty good hooks i particularly like days i think that's a really cool song and i like time speaks her golden tongue i think that one's good There aren't huge differences between the Andino production and the uh, Fisk production, but there are little ones, you know, like the Fisk stuff sounds a little more garagey, almost a little more 60s-ish in, its, in a way. The drums, slightly more natural sound, 
Whereas with Andino, you can definitely hear that proto-grunge drum sound and uh, arena rock kind of punch, just in his way, not in a sellout way or anything. Right, right. Just the kind of thing that he was coining at the time, basically. Right. Yeah, I think I think the point you make about their albums is pretty interesting too because I, I I like all the SST records. I think especially Invisible Lantern I think is an amazing record, but they they do all have spots where they're like, okay, this isn't as good as the last song or or as, as the song. To, it's almost like they almost were able to to mix songs in a way so that you could be okay with a song that wasn't as good because it got them to another place on the record. Whereas with this here, it's kind of like, it's just bang, bang. They don't need to do this kind of like, well, this could be a transitional track between these two or whatever. They're just hit, they're just hitting on each song because there's only four songs. And sure, Right. That makes sense. And, and also it's a band that obviously at that point only really had one songwriter. So right. you don't have a multiplicity of voices I think I read that Lanigan really didn't start writing until after Uncle Anesthesia, which is the album after this, like Sweet Oblivions, when he started contributing stuff. So all of this is, I'm pretty sure, Lee Connor, and it's very much in that updated, psychedelic way. Uh, he was I was reading an interview with him where he said that, in his mind, they were going to be a 60s garage homage band. Like that was uh-huh. his idea. And he said, if you like, uh-huh. I was reading, he pointed at the picture, like he points out in the picture of one of their first pictures, you can see he's got like bangs and these round glasses. He's wearing this like <laughs> Paisley mm-hmm. shirt. And he's like, but nobody else wanted to do it. So we, we became this thing. Uh, uh-huh. But that was, I remember when they first popped up, that was a big part of it is they did kind of, that forced them to find a cool new way to sort of sound psychedelic without just sounding like the Paisley underground bands from LA or something like that. It really was kind of a, a different vibe that they, they got like a heavier vibe with it. That was pretty unique. And it wasn't just landing and singing. It was like the whole package was a little bit different while at the same time, still obviously being derived from the garage psychedelic stuff. They're very acidy. I don't know how much acid most of those guys take Lanigan probably took a ton, but it's very, you know, it's very, uh, very acidy, very, it's knowingly psychedelic. I mean, you got the name, the screaming trees, you know, mm. like I'm in the woods, man. I hear the trees. You know, <laughs> fucking right. Yeah. And it does definitely have that vibe drifting over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's funny if you, I always kind of, when I first heard them, I, I had trouble placing, especially because they're an SST, which gave you a little of expectation of punk, but SST at this point was already signing a diverse range of bands. So it wasn't necessarily a surprise that they didn't sound like other SST bands, but I still like, I, yeah, I, I wasn't exactly sure exactly what to place them in Seattle. They they started putting out records before Seattle was happening. Oh, yeah. They're way, I mean, the know. first one, Clairvoyance, when I was, I mean, I heard that at the radio station that when that came out. So they had, the other thing is, I don't know how they, they got good distribution for that first record, which helped them, I think. They got into a lot of college radio stations and there were some easy to play on the radio songs on that one. And that, that led them to the SST stuff, which once they combined with SST, their records were just everywhere. Like, it, they, you know, I don't know how much money they made, but they were probably, you know, they're getting a van and drive around famous for sure. Like they played all over the place and put out records and um, good live band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as, and as what you say about the garage thing really makes a lot of sense. I, I kind of heard it then and I hear it even more now, sometimes on those older records, even on this record. So if you, if, if they were just, you know, slightly a little bit um, more, homage they could be like a get hip band or something they could be they could be one of those like kind of uh retroish garage bands that were happening then there were a lot of good ones too like crypt bands and stuff like that oh yeah but, well, i mean the fuzz know. tones and stuff like that absolutely i think because of that the songs aren't written very garagely though 
Like it's no. like there's a vibe to it, but the song there they don't really when I think about it, they don't have sort of a garagey kind of song. Sometimes they sound a bit like cream, maybe to me. Mm-hmm. Like there mm-hmm. seems to be a bit of that with it, or some of the heavier power trio y stuff. The Who I think is an obvious thing with them. And the drumming in particular sounds very sometimes very Keith Moon informed to my ears. Um, yeah. And they don't really have that kind of hey, hey. Let you know, garage the, the the kind of uh upbeat kind of like the garage thing, especially with Lanigan, that where the vocal vocalist is often sort of like this ringleader of the people on the floor or whatever. That was not Lanigan's role. No, they're more blue cheers, blue cheer doors, dark, dark psych, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. And especially lyrically too. I mean, all their lyrics have these kind of mythical, kind of mysterious, it's all shadows and and <laughs> glass cubes. dark yeah dark places and sleep time and night and all that kind of stuff but but in a in a way that's not like too cliche i think i think it's it's there's consistency to, to what their lyrics are about but it's i think they're pretty generally on this record at least pretty good at painting some pictures without it sounding too kind of stock right well i mean i think that's always probably with lanigan's well so he would he would change lyrics too i think like he would get a hold of lyrics or rewrite them and things like that they aren't i mean i'm reading them now they're they're actually cool and i love screaming trees don't diminish it at all they're not the most mature like kind of lyrics in a way like they are kind of like an idea of what lyrics are you know yeah. in a way mm-hmm. like they remind me a little bit of um oasis lyrics in some ways <laughs> well that's um, good then <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a side conversation we'll have some other time <laughs> so i'm tweeting here but uh no but but no uh i mean that sincerely though i'm not just trying to do that um i they do kind of remind me of that and i guess if people do like it and i think they're better than oasis lyrics but if people do like oasis lyrics they do kind of like that vaporous you can apply almost anything mm-hmm. to them right you know? right like right for sure and and uh that's not necessarily a weakness because that gives a lot of different people away inside the songs and they end up conveying a lot of emotional content between Lanigan's voice and the sound of the band itself and the way it plays.
their guitar sound, I remember being standing out, especially live, as being just absolutely one of the most extreme, like just absolute mayhem, just a sheet of freaking noise. Yeah. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, I, I I never was able to see them live. You saw them, or I did. Yes, I saw them uh, in a frat house in Yale in an attic. And I don't know why they happened to play there. Uh, they <laughs> they should have probably been playing a bigger place. Maybe it was a between gig. So it was them and Firehose, somebody else. And so Van Connor was sick or something like that. And so he didn't tour with them. And he was replaced with Donna Dresch. Oh, uh, nice. Who went on to become sort of a well-known person. And, and uh, she was great. Perfect for them because she's very energetic. And uh, they were great to see just right in your face like that. Cause I'm just standing in front of Mark Lanigan, like, Oh, okay, there <laughs> the drummer. Uh, I like that drummer a lot. Mark Pickerel. I don't think they were quite as good after that guy left and his drumming on this, this, these seven inches is particularly good. Uh, he's got a little bit of flair. Like he's a little bit Keith Mooney, but he plainly kind of does his own thing with it. Like I'd call him another proto grunge drummer. Because he does predate that by quite a bit, and uh, definitely combining '70s '60s rock with, uh, say, the Husker Du kind of energy um, is, you know, he would have been pretty early with that kind of thing. And I thought, yeah, I think he sounds great. He always really, he really compliments them. They start to sound more like a professional rock band in a weird way. And I, and when they have what's his name, Barrett Martin in there, um, I don't think his playing is as much character. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I like the records that came after this, the the especially the first two epic records. I think are good, but there's definitely a different vibe there. It's 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 not necessarily glossier, but there's a smoother thing happening. And the this you can see them sort of pointing to what we're doing in this, but this still has the kind of edge that the previous albums had in in a really good way. And I'd be curious. I'm surprised that they didn't actually take another take new stabs at these songs later too. I'm glad they didn't. But it seems like something they might have thought about doing. Yeah, I mean, sub pop. At the t- you know, at the time you would have thought, oh, it's selling fine. It's on sub pop. You would not think it's would have been completely out of print for thirty years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was ever the intention in a weird way. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. It's yeah. You still you can't. It's not on streaming services. It's not. It's impossible to. You have to pay money for it. Yeah, I couldn't even to, to be honest because you know I I grabbed. If I don't have, if I only have the seven inch, I try to grab MP3s to play when we're in in the podcast. And on this one, I couldn't even find a, a way to buy it. I had to go to an old blog that had posted it. Yeah, I had that for a long time. And then when I sold a bunch of CDs, you know, I'm like, ah, I can always get Screaming Tree stuff because I had both. I had the double seven inch, original double seven inch at one point, uh, but they add an extra. If you got the CD, there was like one more song. Right, right. Okay, and yeah, so yeah. eventually, I. I got the CD, but yeah, stupidly, I got rid of it because I'm like, it'll be it's just screaming trees. You could find that shit anywhere. <laughs> right. And uh, that right. one in particular, which is my favorite, I no, you can't. Yeah, that's wild. The funny, the, the one of the interesting things here too, if like if your perspective on them is you learned about them in the grunge years when they had a, you know, I guess they had like one hit or maybe two off of the major label records, and I think people thought of them as like, oh, they're part of that whole scene. Well. Well, it didn't take that long to figure out that they'd been around a lot longer than most of those bands. But also, I don't think even as as, as they got a little slicker on the major labels, they never really they still sounded like them. So they, they didn't it didn't seem like they ever kind of said, we're going to go with this and sound like the other bands that are happening now. Which, no, and I, I think they because they had the sound they did, it was pretty easy to just knock that into a kind of an arena kind of shape. It kind of works. 
it does like you're saying it doesn't really fundamentally alter them that much right you know because right. they already weren't like a do 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 garage band it uh-huh. was more of a a concept kind of thing so it became pretty easy for them just to rock out you know just a little bit more give it that little bit of arena flash and the heavier slappier drums Thing I think it's worth mentioning too here is how the this each tra- track has kind of a different thing going on. I mean, they're all very Screaming Trees songs, but I think like Time Speaks Your Golden Tongue is kind of slowish and more almost ballady, and Flashes is like a metal tune. Yeah, kind of. Days then, is a big heavy rock song with trumpet at right. the end of it. Yep, yep. That trumpet is a good touch too. Yeah, though. it is kind of Gen- good. Yes. Generally, I'm not a fan of that idea, but it works out <laughs> well there. <laughs> but no, it actually it sounds pretty good there. It's interesting with them because I don't generally, unless I until I sit and listen to the records, I you know my my general like rem- removed impression of them is that they weren't super diverse in their styles, but they actually kind of were. I mean, songs would be pretty different from song to song, but they they have this kind of overwhelming with that consistent guitar sound and with Lanigan's voice so distinct that everything. Yeah, I don't think he he ever became the most dynamic singer kind of no, like no, it's yeah. you know it's he he has a couple different modes. I guess eventually he got a grizzled, whispery kind of mode, uh, but but he's also it's an incredible voice, unforgettable, and plainly he knew how to to sing eventually, you know, really well. Um, and he's strength of the band, but yeah, it's like, it's not a lot of variance going on, but that's also typical of that time period with those records and those bands. A lot of them, you know, you have your thing you're doing and you just do it. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I do- I, you're right though. You're right though. Because that's what I was saying is like, instead of writing all these garagey songs, they, they just seem to go all over the map a little bit mm-hmm. within that narrow frame of sounding like them. It's like, they try right. a lot of different stuff. Uh, within the hard rock framework, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, they do. I think it's almost it's it's almost easy to kind of miss that. It's almost like they're like deceptively diverse because every song is in, like you say, in a somewhat narrow range, but lots of differences from track to track. And yep. uh, you know, and I think it's not just, especially in the songwriting because the guitar sound. I love his guitar sound, but again, he sort of like Lanigan was not did not play a lot of different. But the structures, the song structures, and they were always usually about the same length and everything. But the you know the the variance in terms of the the pacing and the way that they would put a song together from verse to chorus and stuff like that definitely could change. It changes on this record. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I really like my favorite. I think is even if and especially when I kind of like the crudeness of that one. I mean, I crude crude is the wrong word, but I just really like that one. Seems a little raw in its way. Um, uh, Buzz Factory is kind of cool too. Like Buzz Factory's got that. I think Andino did that one, and so it's like their first one that sounds kind of like a rockier record, and that one's good. That yeah. one's that one's got a lot of good tunes on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was for some reason maybe it's just because I, I I sort of first found out about around Invisible Lantern time, but that one has a a feel to me. That's one's the kind of the most like murkyish kind of. It's it's that one's good. That one I like that yeah. one a lot. Yeah, yeah. that mm-hmm. one's good. I, I like all of those SSC ones and Clairvoyance, which is the first one that came out, which is the first one I heard, uh, is good. I got I got after Clairvoyance, I I ended up hearing uh, the first one, which I can't remember the name of right now um that is really good and that's probably the most garagey 60s-ish sounding one that's the one where it, they actually do seem to be using 60s real 60s tropes but so for some reason the songs are really catchy and uh there's a couple of really good songs on there they were i, I don't know why at the time i probably would have associated them with the band like plastic land or something like that in a way because they were so self-consciously 60s-ish but they plainly grew just never really went like in that full direction and just start doing their own thing. They're from the same kind of area that we talked about the Melvins. Right. And right. so they're literally from the same kind of area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think very close. I read an interview with Mark Lanigan when he saw Nirvana play at the high school or something like that. You know, they're from that same milieu and they're just trying to create their own thing, probably in a pretty tough landscape to do that in. Yeah, and they're all, they are quite a parallel to the Melvins because they they predate what happened grunge wise. They kind yep. of are godfathers of the scene, but I, I get the feeling that I don't know. I mean, I guess Screaming Trees were influential on the other. I mean, I, Co- Cobain uh, probably was influenced by them. But yeah, I have a feeling that Melvins were probably a bigger. Imp- oh, Melvins way more influential band. Like yeah. just yeah. right off the bat, I think the Screaming Trees are just people dug them. They sound great. You know, listen to that singer go. Melvins fe- affected people on a psychological philosophical molecular level right like they made right. you think differently about what you might or might not do whereas screaming trees just kind of were good kicked ass came out there and kicked ass kind of whenever i try to think of it's exactly what their role is in that whole situation it's really kind of odd in a weird way they kind of completely separate from it because like because of the predating and because of the never really sounding like any other band there and not being on sub pop like they put out their own records and then who were on sst almost to me like long before 
And oh, the, uh, their drummer is a big networking. Like I think he worked at Sub Pop. So Mark Pickerel oh, okay. is mm-hmm. uh, he's actually a nexus for a lot of stuff. He's a more than just the drummer in Screaming Trees. That he knows a lot of people and uh, has worked on that scene quite a bit. Yeah, and I mean, we, obviously, part of the reason that we're talking about this this week is because Van, the bassist uh, Lee's brother, passed away recently, and then Lanigan passed away last year. I think it hasn't even been a year since he right. passed away, right? So, um, both pretty sad things. Both too young to be dying. Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty ridiculous. I don't know what it really ever happened. I know, I mean, Lanigan was making music all the all along. But I guess they never really thought of. I don't know. Did they do any kind of reunion things? I never heard about. They um, never got. I mean, they never got along, so it probably was tough to even cook up reunion plans. I don't know though. I, you know, they just they're weird on that edge where it's like people aren't begging for it because it's just right. screaming trees, you know. But on right. the other hand, if they probably had done it, they probably would have garnered way more attention than they did the last time around if they'd have been able to get it together because they they would probably sounded great you know same thing and then it would have had a little bit more of an impact now they also the part of it is that when they started getting that attention they stopped for four years and <laughs> right. didn't do anything right. mm-hmm. so if they had put out a record somewhere in there it, we'd be talking about a sort of a different career trajectory anyway right i mean for some reason it sort of makes sense they didn't seem like the kind of band that was built to like weather big storms like they got a hit sort of then their next major label record wasn't quite as big. And then it didn't seem like a kind of band that was going to be like, well, we're still going to stick with this for another 20 years. Although maybe it's just because of its interpersonal. I mean, Mud Honey did it. So it could have happened with Screaming Trees. They just couldn't get along, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that seems yeah. to be a whole bunch of it. It's like, do you want to spend time together? That makes it easier to make music. So Mud Honey, plainly a big focus for them is getting along. Like it's right. a priority. And that makes their art better. I think there's a mythology about you need that kind of fractiousness and stuff like that in order to make great art. And it's, I think it's bullshit for the most part because we've all had jobs and we know there are very few jobs where everybody's at each other's throats and you're doing the best work you can do. It's just not compatible with that. Right. And right. so usually the, I would imagine the best bands are like any workplace, you know, mm-hmm. where everybody knows their role and is fulfilling it. And that's what makes it great. Right. Yeah, no, there are ways. Everybody some- fighting and getting fucked up and stuff like that. Yeah. Like Oasis is one example. The Kinks, another one, where there was always a split in that band because Dave Davies is so fractious and kind of eh, Ray is very withdrawn. Like he's not somebody who really likes to get involved in all that kind of drama, but he also knows he needs his brother in the band. And so there's this kind of mess that happens there. Uh, Oasis, they both seem like cement heads, so there's not a lot of logic going <laughs> that on help. there. Yeah. No, and so there's not a lot of logic going on there. But I don't know that I would consider that you know great art on the level of the Kinks, for instance. Like, but and so these, well, I mean, these are battling brothers. These are apt comparisons because there was a lot of conflict also between Lee and Van. There are plenty of stories about the two of them fighting and Lanigan and Pickerel standing around watching them fight. Like, I'm not right. getting in the middle of that. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. And then uh-huh. there's stories about the whole band fighting other people <laughs> right. they encounter on right. the street. And <laughs> right. so, uh, you yeah. know, it's, 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 it's a shame though, because they were really good. And I also really kind of loved their, their whole, just the visual aspect of Lanigan, this tall guy with his long hair, kind of kind of the Jim Morrison kind of looking guy and then these two guy two brothers that almost look like twins. 
he was fun to i didn't obviously i only saw uh, lee but he was a lot of fun to watch live because he just it was a little bit the d boon thing where he's just flinging himself all over the place and there's a lot to fling around <laughs> very entertaining yeah. guitar just everywhere all the time and stuff like that is they were they were they definitely had their visual thing together in a weird way and mm-hmm. i i can't mm-hmm. imagine it wasn't unconscious you know it's like and and it was during that era where everybody was pro- expected to provide interpretive dance with the music that they were doing. So they're supposed to flop around as much as possible and throw themselves around. And so it probably it did also look really good to have Lanigan not moving at all, and then the two people behind him going like crazy, <laughs> right, you know? right? And right. that's a, that also carries a lot of interest in its way. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just think they they were one of the coolest looking bands in pictures. There was this weird symmetry to them with the two brothers flanking Lanigan that always looked cool to me. But it's it, you know, if you you, you got to be visually arresting. I mean, there is that definitely. There's part of it like that. That component is something that people want to pretend like doesn't exist, especially in the underground world and the indie world. It's like ah, we're too integ too much integrity for us to put something out there like that. Uh-huh, it's like uh-huh. no, I mean, like people want to see that. Like right. that, that's another connection, that physical connection of performance and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Especially back in the days when there wasn't that much media to peruse about bands. Like if you saw the picture of them on the back cover, that might be the only time you ever saw them. It's true. You wouldn't that, see video over and over. Yeah. You wouldn't see video. You'd have to go see them live or look at pictures and imagine what they were doing. Right. Right. Exactly. Which was cool. So. It was, it was better. <laughs> exactly <laughs> it was better those are the good old days come on right, no no right. but no, it's nothing's improved no, um, <laughs> nothing's improved that's the spindles that's the spindles motto nothing's yeah, yeah, improved yeah. we're only getting worse episode by episode right. exactly thing. don't expect us to improve when no one else ever has why should um, we <laughs> yeah. well uh this has been uh uh different than i expected but I've, I've been enjoyed it this is a great record and <laughs> i'm glad we talked about this. this is the two two straight episodes of seattle band great seattle bands which is awesome but maybe we'll uh not be seattle next time but definitely if you've never heard screaming trees this is a good place to start well it's kind of it's it is obviously we did this because of ban dying and it is kind of a bummer that we're getting to that age where now we've had how many of these memorial ones almost in a row yeah and it's like kind of a bummer uh but it is also a function of aging and nostalgia now we're looking back you know nostalgia and so this is the this is the bittersweet tang of nostalgia finishing with the idea that this person that represented something in our youth is now gone and all we can do is sort of look at these records and be like, Ooh, that was a long time ago. Yeah. But oh. also just be so happy that they did this. And you know, when it, when it's happening at the time, you don't really necessarily know what it's going to mean to you later, but I'm really glad that they made this band and that they made these records. I mean, all this got preserved. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And that whole Seattle scene, it really is kind of remarkable how that came out of these places like Ellsberg and Monsanto and Grace Harbor and these complete shitholes, uh, right. putting them down, but just, you know, it's the like logging towns and just these dark places, you know, uh, and these kids are inspired by all sorts of things to create something original and just do it anyway, even though there's really not a lot of incentive and nothing to mm-hmm. do. Yeah. And it's not like, not only did they predate grunge, they predated 
the thing that predated like the sub pop wave maybe not yeah. might not have been a mainstream thing but it was a hip enough thing that probably there were bands seattle bands were like i'd like to be on sub pop I, i'd like to make a band to get on there screaming trees are before that even yeah nothing, right nothing to aspire to in that area there were you know? i mean i have to admit when they popped up they were out of nowhere like there were a couple bands up there you knew about like the human human say you know right. or the wipers mm-hmm. but they seemed mm-hmm. older and kind of bigger that it was weird to see them pop up and they have nothing to do with say beat happening or something like that like they were just sort of their own thing always like they aren't part of a scene and uh there's something to be said for that kind of independence it's it it means they're harder to pigeonhole as a grunge band or as an underground band or an above ground band they kind of just are a rock band you know like a hard yeah hard rock band from the 80s 90s and it's interesting that probably in the 70s they would have been more of an arena-ish band in a more easy way because they would have had a longer career that would have been brought along a little. They would have had more space to just make albums and tour opening for people and stuff like, say, a Blue Usher Cult or Aerosmith or somebody like that. And uh, who knows what kind of career they would have had then. That's really, that's a good point. Yeah, and and it's just, just a little bit earlier would have been a lot different. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening to this one and I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you'll tune in with us next time on the spindle. Bye-bye. The spindle is produced by John Howard and me, Mark masters. I'm also the audio editor. Our theme song is by the great band, honey radar. Our podcast is brought to you by wasteoids audio and video from hello merch. Find more podcasts and videos at wasteoids.com. And please leave a rating and a review of our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.